Hello and welcome to the Portfolio Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, John Bryson, Head of Investment Consulting and Education Savings at John Hancock Investment Management. Today is September 16th, 2021, and I'm joined by Emily Rowland and Matt Miskin, our Co-Chief Investment Strategists at John Hancock Investment Management. As you may know, Matt and Emily are the architects behind our quarterly capital markets outlook piece titled Market Intelligence. Matt and Emily also gave me a sneak peek at a new blog they're working on where they discuss four myths facing fixed income investors today. Hey, Matt, why don't you jump in and tell us why you put this piece together in the first place? Yeah, thanks for having us, John. We're really excited about this piece. And really, this is us going through some of the data um, and really fact-checking some of the um, prevailing you know, kind of assumptions in the fixed income market and making sure that these risks that we're hearing in, in the fixed income markets really show up in, in historical data. And market intelligence, as we all know, is, is kind of where we you know, stress test things, where we're looking at the fixed income risks out there and thinking about positioning. But in this blog, we've got four major, what we believe are kind of misconceptions or myths around the fixed income market. So the first one, uh, in essence, is that the Federal Reserve raises rates in, um, in, in mid-cycle environments, and that you want to be in short duration. So mid-cycle is the part of the cycle we believe we're in. But what we found was that actually the, the makeup of performance is, is a bit different. And, and the leaders and laggards in mid-cycle in, investing and fixed income aren't as intuitive as you might think. Another one is that you know, the Federal Reserve is likely to taper quantitative easing. And the thought would be that treasury yields would rise as the Fed buys less bonds. Counterintuitively, we, we found actually that that hasn't been the case in the last times that they have, have done tapering. So we'll talk about that. Another one, uh, investors should look for the equity market to provide yield or income, given that the bond market is providing so little yield. We have some kind of differentiated views on that and, and, and some thoughts, risks that should be considered for that kind of uh, move. And then the final one is that greater supply uh, results in higher treasury yields. So we all know that you know, the government is, is issuing more treasury debt to fund the stimulus uh, from the pandemic. But counterintuitively, not all the time, in fact, more often than not, yields don't rise on greater supply. Uh, and we could talk about some of those details. So a lot to cover, uh, but we think that this is very helpful for setting the stage as a fixed income investor in what is becoming an increasingly challenging environment uh, in terms of bond investing more broadly. Yeah, and it's certainly timely because these are all challenges we're hearing uh, about in the marketplace, uh, and I'm sure you are too. So, Emily, I want to pull you into the conversation. Um, one of the myths that Matt had mentioned, let's start with this one. You know, it's about shortening the duration. It's been a popular move on and off over the last few years, or if not longer. Why are you advising against it right now? Let's dig in a little bit deeper. Yeah, thanks, John, for having us today. And I, I first want to apologize for a couple of dings that you heard there. I made the rookie mistake of leaving my email open uh, on our, our podcast today. So still learning lessons here, even uh, 18 months into working remotely. So apologies for <laughs> no that. No problem, no problem. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think this is one of the most kind of uh, the biggest kind of misconceptions out there around the Fed raising rates. You want to be shorter duration. And it's actually something that, you know, we typically hear after recessionary period. So the idea is that when you 
are in this sort of early to mid-cycle environment of the first couple of phases after the recession, the 10-year treasury yield is going to rise as the economy improves, as inflation picks up. Um, but when we look more closely at the data, yes, there is an initial backup in yields right after the recession, but it's actually pretty short-lived. Uh, and the peak in the 10-year treasury actually occurs right after the recession. Uh, we looked at that over the last 40 years, um, four different economic cycles, and we found that the 10-year treasury actually did find its highest level of the cycle within a year after the recession, and it peaks, and then it fluctuates in a trading range, and then it ultimately finds a, a new lower low in the next recession. Um, and this has had a, a huge impact on the relative performance that we've seen across different parts of the fixed income market. Uh, so one thing we do in this paper is, is look at, and, and previous work that we've done, is look at Morningstar uh, category returns over those the last two cycles. Um, and what we found is that short duration strategies, which frankly have attracted a ton of assets, have actually been the worst relative performers in mid-cycle periods. The best performers, meanwhile, have been corporate bonds, um, including high yield. Uh, and the logic here is that, you know, those shorter duration strategies, of course, are going to offer lower income potential, given the, the low rate environment, while corporate bonds actually don't see as much of a duration headwind as investors expect, because again, longer dated treasury uh, bond yields actually end up staying more anchored than expected. Um, so instead, investors are going to be able to benefit from that greater income potential you're going to get being further out on the curve. Uh, so bottom line is that overemphasizing short duration strategies and fixed income portfolios, you may leave returns on the table doing that. Uh, we suggest instead looking to corporate credit, um, earning that greater income potential for this middle part of the cycle. Uh, looking at intermediate term uh, and, and uh, really sort of positioning for this mid-cycle environment that could last for some time here. Yeah, no doubt. That's, that's excellent advice. It's, it, it takes the focus away from the short term and, and over the immediate and long term where you're really going to get some value for the investments that you have. So, so Matt, I want to come back to you. Um, the second myth that you and Emily challenge is that when the Fed starts tapering bond purchases, the yield on long-dated treasuries, they're going to rise. That seems logical, uh, you know, that, that thesis that when demand dries up, yield should rise. So what are, what are people missing? Yeah, so this is going to be a big development into 2022. The Fed has really, you know, forecasted or foretold that they're going to be tapering quantitative easing. Um, now, they've done this before, you know, so we've got some, some history here, quantitative easing is a relatively new phenomenon, and, and it really started last cycle. But in 2010-2011, uh, they stopped uh, QE2. So they, they basically halted the balance sheet growth right in uh, after QE2. And that was in uh, just about 2011. But oddly enough, what, what happened to the 10-year Treasury yield? It actually went from about 3% and then it, it fell over the next several years and troughed around 1.5%. So counterintuitively, in that example, uh, you know, reduction of, of the balance sheet expansion caused the tenure to, to actually fall. Then we have another example here. In, in 2013, um, at the end of that year, the Fed actually you know, tapered quantitative easing. 
And what happened? A 10-year treasury yield peaked at about 3%. And then over the next several years was basically in a downtrend to about one and a half. So the last two times the Fed has either stopped, increased their balance sheet or tapered their balance sheet, both of those examples saw the 10-year treasury yield fall. So, so why is this? Well, when we look back at those periods, what we're seeing is that the Federal Reserve had already done a lot and the economy had already come back. But when we look at the leading economic indicators, so just kind of a proxy of, of how good the, the economic data was coming in, we were seeing that the economic data was peaking and starting to decelerate, meaning the best growth rate was behind us, the Fed had done all the stimulus, but then we were transitioning to another part of the cycle, one of a slower growth environment. And when we have a slower growth environment, investors typically gravitate to higher quality investments, which re usually results in a flatter treasury curve. It means that the 10-year treasury yields and longer dated yields get a bid, meaning there's more demand for them. And so what we're seeing is it's not really as much about the tapering, it's more about the cycle. And when we look at the leading economic indicators today, they peaked in April, they're decelerating. Now that's, you know, they're still at a high level. We're not seeing a recession on the horizon at this point, but as the LEI decelerates, leading economic indicators decelerate, it usually means the treasury curve flattens. It means there's a bid or demand for longer dated treasury yields. So we believe actually that this time could be very similar and that, you may not see upside pressure on yields, even though the Fed is buying less uh, as it relates to quantitative easing. So that's more on the demand side. Let's also talk about the supply side because one of the myths you talk around uh, in the paper is about supply and a larger deficit. Can, can you dig into that for our audience? So one of the, the largest fears that we hear every day, and, and it's a logical one, is we've got a massive deficit uh, in the United States. And we are increasing our supply of treasury bonds every year. Uh, and last year was, was one of the largest ever. I mean, it, you know, increase-wise, we almost added a trillion dollars. We did four, nearly $4 trillion of treasury debt issued in 2020 and it's it's on pace to be you know massive again this year but when we look back so the government has been issuing debt for a long time turns out um this isn't a new phenomenon you know we go back about 15 years they were doing you know 700 billion dollars now they're doing four trillion dollars uh so there's been a massive ramp up in treasury issuance the whole last cycle past the global financial crisis we've been issuing debt pretty consistently. And we look back, okay, so we're looking for periods where issuance of treasury bonds creates higher yields. And we just do not see the connection. There's been years, you know, where there's been a huge issue. Last year was a great example. 2020, we did 4 trillion. What did the 10-year treasury yield do? It dropped 1%. So even all, even though all this supply came online, yields actually fell. So why is this, right? The reason to us, I think this quote is, is the one to really think about. Debt is a tax on future growth. So, you know, we're, we're issuing all this debt, we're, we're managing our way out of this pandemic recession, 
But what it does is it, it, it creates this uh, hindrance to growth because you're not able to buy new things. You're not able to invest in the future. You're paying for the past. And as you pay that interest, even though that interest is low, it's a weight on growth. And when you have a weight on growth, oddly enough, it's almost like a circular feedback loop. Lower growth pro profile means lower interest rates. And you keep doing this. In Japan, it's a perfect example. They have issued a ton of debt and they're not seeing any inflation. In fact, they're just seeing very low yields. So it's another very counterintuitive uh, part of the bond market that more supply actually creates lower yields, but the, the key linchpin there is that it really creates a lower global growth profile in general, and that actually creates more demand for bonds. And that's why, even though there's more debt outstanding, yields have been compressed amidst this environment. It's fascinating kind of thinking through the, the chess versus checkers approach here. You, you got to think through multiple layers. Uh, and plan ahead. Uh, so this is great insight. So Emily, I want to I want to talk about the final myth uh, in the blog. Uh, you discuss another phenomenon that we've seen a lot over the last decade. You know, investors using equities to boost their income. What's yours in that take here? Yeah, this one intuitively seems to make a lot of sense. So we often hear from investors that because the yield on fixed income assets is so low, that it's better to go. To to equities for income. Um, it, and it is true. I mean, the yield on the bar cap ag is now at historical lows. It's around 1.4%. You know, clearly that's, that's limiting income potential. And this could make, you know, you're looking at the dividend yield on the S&P 500 and it can look pretty attractive um, at times uh, on a relative basis, but you've, you've got to look a little closely a little closer under the hood. Uh, so right now the dividend yield on the S&P 500 is 1.27%. And that's actually a bit less than the yield on the ag. The other thing to remember here is equities come with more risk than bonds. So while that dividend yield may look attractive, you've also got to look at the volatility profile of equities as well. And when we look at the three-year standard deviation of the S&P, it's around 18%, while the standard deviation on the ag is about 5.4%. Um, so that's something that's important to consider when you make that move from bonds to stocks, um, you're going to increase the volatility profile of your portfolio. Now, don't, don't get us wrong. Um, you know, we still view equities as a, as a really important part of a portfolio. You want equities for that capital appreciation element uh, to reach your investing goals, but you know bonds. Think of it as bonds playing the other critical half of a portfolio. You want to generate those dependable returns. You want to provide that ballast in periods of equity market uh, volatility. So something to think about in terms of that decision. Uh, looking a bit further at the data. And just remembering, you know, across all four of these myths that, you know, these beliefs and experiences and, and you know, now it's exacerbated by all of the financial media and, and Twitter. So there's so much information coming. Um, I know it's a lot of noise. Um, you know, if you're, if you're watching the media or looking at Twitter, of course, we want you to pay attention if Matt and I are, are being featured there, but otherwise uh, not. No, I'm just kidding. But there's a lot of information out there that's not always grounded 
in, in data and analysis. Um, so, you know, we think it's important to kind of rethink some of those narratives and make sure that we're actually doing the work to understand if they've, they've been true over time. That's excellent. And Emily, you and Matt are two of the few that I do pay attention to on Twitter. So <laughs> I encourage that. And, and your point, and I've heard you say this before, uh, you know, have your, your bonds act like bonds in a portfolio. That's critical. And I know that our investment consultant team has been out talking for a long time about have your equity act like equity and not have it be too sensitive to interest rate fluctuations, or at least understand those. And that, that kind of ties into your point here. So I think that's really timely and really great takeaways for this blog that you've, you've created, this, this, this white paper of, of viewpoint. So when is it coming out and how can people access it? And any of the other material, Emily, that I know you and Matt are, are pumping out uh, great material. Yeah, so John, you can access our blog on the website, jhinvestments.com um, in the viewpoint section. It's pretty easy to find. A lot of these themes we also examine in, in market intelligence, um, which is our quarterly flagship uh, outlook on the markets and economy, which you talked about at the beginning today. Um, our, the new version of market intelligence will be out on or around October 7th. You can also find that on jhinvestments.com. On the top right, there is a opportunity to click on market intelligence. We also, John, have a, a weekly market recap that may be of interest where we explore these issues. Uh, we think about kind of what's driving markets over the course of the week. We preview the week ahead, all sorts of uh, great resources that um, we're producing and, and we hope uh, helps uh, in, in advisors' businesses today. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned all those pieces. I pay attention to them all. It helps me personally cut through the clutter. Like I'll read a lot of the things that everybody else reads, but your material, yours and Matt's material helps me cut through the clutter and get to the heart of it. So Matt and Emily, you've been great guests. I always love having you on. Uh, thank you for sharing uh, and giving us a sneak peek to this new insights that you're going to be putting out there. Folks, if you want to hear more of our podcast, please subscribe to Portfolio Intelligence on iTunes, or like Emily mentioned, Visit our website, jhinvestments.com. You can get up to speed on our podcast and all the great stuff that Matt and Emily and the rest of our network is producing around the market, portfolio construction techniques, business building ideas, and a heck of a lot more. Everybody, thanks for listening to the show. Have a great day. This podcast is being brought to you by John Hancock Investment Management Distributors, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker, are subject to change as market and other conditions warrant, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment strategy discussed will be successful or achieve any particular level of results. Any economic or market performance information is historical and is not indicative of future results and no forecasts are guaranteed. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.